Well, good morning, Sarahville. If you're on a copy of Scripture with you, you can turn to the very last chapter in the book of Ezra as we conclude our series, God Help Us. Uh, and I trust it's been a good series for you. Ezra chapter 10, if you go there. We just got done singing, We Have No Other King but Jesus, Lord of All. Great to sing, maybe harder to live because I think we live in a day where we have, we've enthroned many kings and not just Jesus as Lord. And that was the problem in Jerusalem in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. About a year or so ago, a friend of mine, Keith Carlson, member of our church, uh, told me about uh, his multiple trips that he had taken to Romania. If you know anything about the history of Romania, you might remember that it was part of those, those Balkan states that were uh, satellite countries to the former Soviet Union in 1989. Everything started falling apart. And uh, Romania was, was one of those countries that was uh, actually ruled by a ruthless dictator by the name of Nicolae Ceausescu. He was a murderer, hated believers. And if you were a believer in Romania during the 40 years previous to that, it was a very dangerous, dangerous place to live. And uh, uh, my friend Keith told me that the Romanians uh, had a word, that is the serious-minded and serious-hearted Christians, had a word that originated during the, the, the reign of terror of Nicolae Ceausescu. And it was the word for repenters. It was the word pokaitsi. We are the repenters, is what they said. And the idea was they understood that there were so-called Christians in Romania that were very, they, 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 they defined them as just cultural Christians, much as cultural Christians would be today in the States. Uh, but they were calling Christians to be pokaitsi, repenters, the, the singular being pokait, uh, uh, a pokaitsi or a pokait was one who believed that life as a Christian should be an ongoing life of repentance. And an ongoing life of repentance was actually essential to the Christian life. Remember what Jesus said to the Ephesians in Revelation 2? He said, he said remember from where you have fallen, repent. Remember that? He's, he was talking to Christians and do the first works. So Sailorville Church and those of you who are visiting with us this, uh, on this memorial weekend, we must be pokaitsi, repenters, willing to repent, obey, and keep on obeying uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, just to lead off with that, if I may, just the other day, I was in California. We were, my wife and I were on a ministry vacation. I'd spoken, we did a marriage retreat, and I, I actually did three podcasts with Living Waters Ministry and Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort is a name many of you know, many of you probably don't know. He's a very colorful, charismatic uh, evangelist, apologist, and author, well-known uh, and for his um, beach evangelism and such. Um, he actually endorsed my book, so they asked me if I would come on to their podcast. It was a great privilege. But I have to be honest with you. I had not, I have never been super drawn to Ray Comfort's style of ministry. It's very confrontational. 
And yet, if you've watched it, it's also very entertaining and very powerful. I thought the man to be kind of quirky myself. So uh, I'd met him about 10 years ago. I had lunch with him. It was just kind of an awkward time, and I, I, I terribly misjudged him is what I did. And last week, I spent some time with the man, looked at his, got, got a firsthand opportunity to see, witness his character, his authority in the word of God and his passion for souls. But as we sat down to do the very first podcast, he, he, he sat right next to me. He said, so Pat, have you seen? Now, he had, they had my book in front of them. They'd all read it. They'd actually studied it, which was sort of scary because I'd forgotten parts of it myself. <laughs> and uh, he looks at me and says, hey, have you watched my, my, my film, The Fool, The Banana Man? And I looked at him and I said, uh, no, I haven't. It's like the most popular one they've ever done. And frankly, in the moment, I was thinking, what does that have to do with my book? This is about me right now. Don't you know that, right? I didn't say that to him. I had no idea. I thought, this is completely off subject. And then later on that day, I watched the film. And I realized why he'd asked me if I had watched the film. Because if you know anything about the book I wrote, the subtitle is Cultivating Humility After Humiliation. And I saw from that film that this man, having been horribly humiliated by his own words, rather than running from his humiliation, embraced it. He embraced it with atheists and agnostics. And the result was the gospel went forth in extraordinary ways, which is what happens when we're truly repenters, truly humble. So if you're a Christian... And by the way, I repented then, and I let him know. I'm a Ray Comfort fan now. If you're a Christian, you'll never move forward in your walk with God, break sinful habits or lifestyles that are not pleasing to God unless you repent and learn to repent. If you're not a Christian, you'll never get to heaven Apart from repentance, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Have you ever read that? Genuine repentance leads to ongoing obedience, which is the proof that your repentance is real. And I've been thinking about this Ezra series, and several weeks ago after I preached from Ezra 3, every single service was lined up with individuals praying, confessing, weeping, many out there who didn't go forward, some of you saying, I should have gone forward. My question now is, is it ongoing? Is it real? If you're gonna be a pokeitsi, you're gonna be a repenter, you're gonna be an ongoing Repenter. Jesus, after all, said, I've come that you might bear fruit and that your fruit should what? Remain. It should last. It should keep going. I mean, all we have to do is look at Pharaoh and Esau and in the New Testament, Judas. And what do they all have in common? They all felt bad. They all wept. They all sorrowed. Not one of them really repented. And that might describe some of you here. In fact, in fact, probably does. Now, background for those of you who have not been with us is we have been studying the book of 
Ezra, the children of Israel have come back after a 70-year captivity because of their disobedience in Babylon in a series of three separate waves. The first one was through Zerubbabel. 50,000 Jews come back to Jerusalem. They resurrect the altar. They, they lay the foundation for the temple, and it's a great time of excitement and joy, and the, and the young people were excited. The old people were complaining. Remember that? 60 years later, Ezra shows up in the second wave with about 1,500, and the temple's pretty much established, but his purpose in being there as a priest, as a scribe, as a student of the word of God, as a doer of the word, was to reestablish the spiritual atmosphere and status of God's people. But there was a real problem. We saw in chapter nine, with, our, with much thanks to Pastor Jason last week, that there was... The, the people of the land were intermingling with the foreigners, with the pagan idol-worshiping idol foreign women. And we're told in chapter nine, verse two, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And by the way, that's a scary thing because a holy race was supposed to produce the holy one, right? That Luke chapter one talks about in verse 35 when the angel announced to Mary, you're gonna give birth to the holy one. So the holy race could hardly afford being corrupted. So this is really, really serious. And as we were told last week, this was a call to repentance. So Ezra calls for obedience that involved drastic measures to be taken. And when we read this, and I'm gonna read it here in a moment, I can remember reading this as a brand new Christian thing. Oh, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're calling them to do this, God. I'm guessing some of you have had a similar experience. So, Sailorville Church, God has called us to repentance. God, help us to repent. Amen? And to demonstrate that repentance with ongoing obedience. How's that? And with that, Ezra chapter 10. While Ezra prayed, and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great Assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Shehiel, of the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married. Remember that word married. We'll come back to it. Foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away. Underline that word because I'm going to come back to that too. All these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is our task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took an oath. Then Ezra verse six, withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johananan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. Didn't eat bread, didn't drink water, mourned because of, look at the word, faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble in Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. He himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. We're getting really serious here. 
Verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. This would be December 19th, 458 B.C. For you number geeks. It was the ninth month, 20th, middle verse. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra, the priest, stood up and said, you broke in faith and married foreign, foreign, uh, foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you've said, but the people are many, and the time of heavy rain, it's a time of heavy rain. We can't stand in the open, nor is this task for one day or for two. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all of our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only four of them disagreed, by the way, with all this. Only Jonathan, he names three others, uh, supported them. Only, and so... This proves, by the way, that the Baptist church existed before the New Testament. I'm just kidding. Anyway, there's always somebody that's got to be against the leadership. Verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name, on the first day of the 10th month, and sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, three months later, they had come to the end of all the men who had married former, or foreign rather, women. We'll stop there. Now, while you have an English Bible and you can trust it if it's a good translation, the original language often helps us to interpret hard passages. And this is one of those cases here. I want to note a couple of things. This is going to really turn on the text and maybe help you understand why this draconian type of, you know, legislation in order to send away your wives, divorce your wives and your kids. What's going on here? Verse two, end of verse two, you see it where he says, you've broken faith with our God. That's a strong statement. In fact, in chapter nine, verse two, the word faithlessness is used and the Hebrew word faithlessness conveys the idea of abandoning the faith. And here's the point. These foreign women, not Jews, who had come into these Jewish men's lives had not only corrupted or threatened to corrupt the bloodline that would lead to Messiah, but really the, the entire spiritual fabric of the nation. And I'm going to double down. Verse 2, it uses the word, I told you to take note of the word married. This is really interesting. This is not the normal word for marriage. And it might be a key to understanding what, what looks so draconian here, right? so drastic. The word married means we have given a home. That's what the Hebrew word means. We have given a home. It, and it's like saying, yeah, yeah, she's moving. We're shacking up. Like anybody here living together? Join these people. Now, triple down, verse three, you see the word put away? I made note of that. That literally means to, to bring out. And this is not the normal word for divorce. The word divorce, the actual word, is only used a very small handful of times in the Old Testament. And the principal pa passage is Deuteronomy 24, where Moses legislates divorce. That's not the word here. 
This is a different word. And here's the point. While they were living together and bearing children, mind you, these marriages were not legit. This might be the, one of the greatest biblical arguments for the, very, for the ceremony of marriage. And whenever I perform marriages, by the way, when we, you know, a lot of times we'll come back here and the, the legal document will be there and I'll sign it with the witnesses. And then I'll, I'll, I'll then just between the couples, we'll be around the table like this and I'll go, congratulations, the state of Iowa now recognizes you as a husband and wife. Because it's real. Now, in about five minutes, I'm gonna declare before God that they are husband and wife. But we recognize those legal things and Jesus told us to do so, in essence. So I want you to look at verse nine again. I want you to see what a writer Ezra is. At the very end of verse nine, it says, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Great writers have the ability to create imagery. Would you agree? And Ezra is one of them. And can't you just picture the people outdoors shivering in the rain? My wife and I were on this ministry vacation at beautiful Newport Beach on the ocean where the high was 62 the entire time and it rained constantly. <laughs> just kind of a drizzle. But if that's what you're picturing, get it out of your mind. In fact, the Hebrew here uses what we call, the Hebrew word for rain in this passage uses what we call a plurality or a plural of intensity. In other words, it was coming down in buckets. That's how much it was raining. And so it's a miserable situation. They're, they're called to do something drastic. And, and it's just miserable outside. And they, they start saying, man, we, this is gonna take us some time to sift through this. And that takes us to verse 18 to the rest of the chapter and you'll thank me for not reading it because it's a list of violators. Those that they discovered throughout the months who had taken in these foreign wives and now needed to separate, divorce them, send them away. But this is where it's even more interesting. It's a big list but it might be a complete list. There's less than 100 names on the list. That's less than 1% of the entire population. We are not to think that everybody in all Israel was marrying foreign women. But because 27 out of the 100 were leaders like Levites, and because a little leaven leavens the whole what? The whole lump, bang, drastic measures had to be taken. And those who were ferreted out, those who were discovered, they were told, you gotta do something big time here. Let these women and their children go. And then the book just ends. It just ends. No hallmark, no hallmark bow. And the Bible almost never does that. Now, the Bible is a reality book, right? And we who are true believers in Jesus Christ have a great ending to look forward to, amen? But until then, until then, life presents itself with lots of ups and downs, highs and lows, some of our own sinful doing, and some just because we live in a sin-cursed world. Can I get an amen? Thank you, the four-year-old over here. 
And some of these endings are really anticlimactic, like this one. By the way, Ezra ends this way, a lot of people think, because in the Jews, my Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They say, they say, well, that's the reason why it's so anticlimactic. Not really, because you read the end of Nehemiah, that's anticlimactic too. I'll tell you one thing that's not anticlimactic. When genuine repentance produces ongoing obedience in a believer's life, that's not anticlimactic. You know what that is? That's beautiful. That's what that is. And that requires two things. This is where we're gonna spend the balance of our time this morning. Two things. Separation and perseverance. Separating from sin is never easy. It's just essential. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? He said, look, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, what? Pluck it out. In other words, get radical about your sin. Don't pussyfoot around with your sins. And by the way, verse three, remember they, they, they made the women and children go to the foreigners. Remember, it's just a small portion, but even in Bible times when divorcing, the women went with the mother every time. And even if their marriages were not legit, this was a radical call to separation, wasn't it? And yet it was essential. Lest the entire nation of Israel become impacted by the leaders who had succumbed to this sin. And it's, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you illustrate something like this? I actually have one. It's not quite like this, but at Holmes Baptist Church, the church I formerly pastored, I had the joy of leading a guy from Texas to Christ along with his family. He'd, he'd moved up to Iowa, met a gal, got married, had a kid. And then we led him to Jesus. And he was going on big time for Jesus. And he suddenly got a conscience, which happens when you come to Jesus. Amen? Why was he in Iowa from Texas? I'll tell you why. Because he was fleeing his parole officer. I think he was actually fleeing bail. He was supposed to, he, there was an arrest warrant for him. And so he came and talked to me about it. He said, I feel like I need to go back and make this right. And I said, man, that's gonna be hard. You're gonna leave your family and do that? He said, I need to. And he did. And spent the rest of his time in prison finishing out his sentence. What part of your life right now is keeping you from being a pokait, a repenter. What sacrifice of separation do you need to make toward radical obedience? The hand, the things you're touching, the foot, the places you go, the eye, the things you look at. I think our generation, in our generation, the most idolatrous thing that we have embraced is materialism and gross sexual deviance. And we need to run from these things. But whether it's something large or small, be a repenter, amen? Separate from that sin. Secondly, and while this is sort of clunky, go ahead and take a picture of it. 
persevering through the consequences of sin is always hard, but God's grace is always stronger. Now that could probably be said much more eloquently, but just, that's a true statement. Persevering through the consequences of sin is always hard, but God's grace, if you do it right, is always stronger. When the reformers told us, when they, when, they, when they outlined salvation and what it's like, they never talked about eternal security. They may have believed in eternal security, but they never used that terminology. They used the terminology perseverance. They talked about the perseverance of the saints through thick and thin, through recovery from confession, repentance and confession and forsaking of sin and all the consequences that come along with it, those who know Jesus persevere. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. It is true that you can choose your sins, but you can't choose your what? You can't choose your consequences. That's a true statement. You can choose your sins. You don't get to choose your consequences. And that's true. And these Jews had chosen some terrible sins and they had terrible consequences. But I want you to hear this. To the repentant child of God, there is grace to endure in your consequences. Grace, not only to help you endure, but much more importantly, to glorify God through it all. That's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes it beautiful when someone repents of their sin, suffers the consequences, and walks in obedience. That's a beautiful thing. And stop making it all about yourself. That's my, as a pastor, counseling people, discipling people, I, we can become so myopic. What about me? What about mine? What about the, stop making it about yourself. I know it's natural to do so. My wife and I did a marriage conference while we were out there in California. And one of our verses from when we got married is Isaiah 61, verse three, which says beautifully, God will give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isn't that beautiful? Here's the problem. It's so beautiful. That's the only thing we know in that passage. We make it all about us. Oh, God is going to give me beauty for my ashes. He's going to give me the oil of joy for my mourning. He's going to give me a garment of praise for my spirit of heaviness. Why? Because it's all about me. You would never say that. But that's the way we act sometimes. Here's what the rest of the verse says. That we may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. God has done something. And wait for it, that he may be glorified. Have you ever read that? That's the reason God does anything in your life or in mine. It's to bring honor and glory to himself. And yeah, in the, in the train of it all, we get, we get beauty, we get joy, we get praise. And it's all a good thing. But we've got to understand why we're going through this. And, and if we have that kind of attitude, it's a beautiful thing. I got permission on this just the other day. I talked to my friend David Cortner. He's now retired David Cortner was the pastor of Airport Baptist Church when I was a student in Bible college. 
And uh, I'd led a couple to Christ, yada, yada. Went out to, to pastor my first church a couple years in. I got a call from the person that I led to Christ who was in that church. and said, Pat, can you believe it? I said, can I believe what? Our pastor got fired. I said, he got fired? Why did he get fired? He goes, because he was a thief. I said, are you serious? Yeah, he'd been stealing money from our church. I said, you gotta be kidding me. Talk about treachery. But I just told you, David Courtner gave me permission to tell you this story. He was fired. And he went into obscurity for a period of time, but not long. Sometime later, I was ironing my shirt, which is what I do, you know, before, you know, I always wear a press shirt. I'm kidding, I don't know. I did for years, though, you know, before I go to church, you know, and I was ironing my shirt, watching the first Federated broadcast because they had a TV uh, um, thing at the time and I, David Cortner walked on the platform and he stood before a mass of people and said I'm a thief I was a pastor of a church around here and I was stealing money from my own people <sighs> I about burnt a hole in my shirt I was stunned by the admission and the humility of it all I, I couldn't believe it and then a few years later, my wife and I went to a conference and we saw him there. Amongst our own peeps, there he was, not as a pastor, working for a funeral home. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, I just want to continue to take in truth. I said, I mean, I could tell he was different. He was humble. It was, his whole demeanor was changed. I said, David, do you ever believe you'll be back in ministry? He said, Pat, I don't even pursue that. My desire is just to walk with God, be faithful to him. And if he wants to let me use me in some way, that'd be fine. He waited 10 years. From 1989 to 1999, he just served the Lord in a funeral home. But you know what happened? God was praised. God was glorified. He endured by the grace of God and God resurrected him to pastor a church in the area of New York for 23 years in a godly way and retired as a man of God. Amen? That's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. Now, for these Jews, it took three months to sift through every case and make judgments, and it was clear that they were determined to make it happen. And Ezra doesn't describe this, but I like to envision the scene. These, these men who are broken before God, broken before their wives, broken before their children. The, the pathos of it all, the, the separation of families, it had to be awful. I, I like to envision the wives who were enraged. These were pagan. These were ungodly. These were not followers of God. These wives who had introduced idolatry into their men's lives. I like to envision these wives enraged or the fact their husbands had returned to God. And now they're sent away. Oh, the separation, the wailing, the awfulness of it all. One of the hardest things about forgiven sins is the duration and endurance of its consequences. Can I get an amen to that? Like sin itself, we want the consequences to just go away immediately because the sin does when we truly confess it. However if, you're, however, if you're a serious follower of Jesus, don't make it about yourself. Make it about the glory of God and God's grace will help you endure. 
I know that because Jesus told us that. My grace is sufficient for you, right? You know why he said it is? Because it is. And furthermore, when we walk like that as repenters, we prove our renewed love of God by our continuance in faithfulness despite the difficulties that result from our sin. And so, pokeitsi, repenters, and pokeit, repentant one. May the Lord help you, help me to walk in repentance, ongoing obedience that follows, and give us the grace to that end. Amen? Speaking of grace, did you know it's by grace that you're saved through faith? It's not of your own. It's not of your own doings. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of works so that you can't boast about it. And if you don't boast and you give the glory to God for all of his grace, then you become his work of art created in Christ Jesus unto ongoing good works. Do you know him? Are you pokeit? And when's the last time you repented to anybody? Hmm? That'll tell you whether you're pokeit. Our Father, we love you and bless your name. We thank you for the book of Ezra. We thank you for your help. We thank you for the way in which you have instructed us and guided us and warned us and saved us and instructed us in our walk with you. God, help us to be pokaitsi, the repenters, the true repenters, and ongoingly so, and lead us toward ongoing obedience. And why? Well, for all your glory. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.